Well, take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to keep studying on what it means to be a godly husband. We are in the second of, I have no promises, a few sermons on this subject that Paul has outlined. And as you know, he says more to the men than he does the women. My wife is quick to say, well, there's, that's because there is more to say to the men than the women. And I think that she's right. We're looking at the meaning and extent of a husband's leadership or his headship. Let me read the paragraph, which we do every week in the study because it's important to get the whole thing because it all has a very rhythmic structure that we're intended to capture together. Ephesians 5, verse 22, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless." So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ in the church. Nevertheless, let each individual among you, each individual among you is also to love his own wife even as himself. And the wife must see to it, she respects her husband. Christianity has, since its inception, been under extreme criticism and heightened scrutiny. Sometimes this was because the world just didn't understand the Christian faith, didn't understand the Bible or Christian teaching. For example, the Romans in the first century, in the first generation of the church, actually accused the Christians of being cannibals and practicing cannibalism because they misunderstood when Jesus said, this is my body and this is my blood, do this in remembrance of me. They said, well, they're just, they're, they're cannibals, they're eating flesh and blood, they misunderstood. That's easy enough to understand, but there are other times that the church has been regrettably confusing in her representation of what true Christianity is. We call this nominal Christianity. In other words, Christian in name only, but not in life or affections for the Savior. For example, just this last week, a congresswoman here in our own United States, was explaining openly in a newscast to the media that she was almost late to a prayer breakfast. That's right, a prayer breakfast, because she was tempted that morning to fornicate, which would have made her late to the prayer breakfast. This illustrates nominal Christianity. 
Those who claim to be Christians but live a life that does not conform or make any efforts to conform to the Bible's description and understanding of Christianity, expectations for believers. Now bring this up because much of what critics throw at biblical masculinity, marital headship, is tied to men who may claim to know Christ, but do not work hard at being holy or leading their wives toward holiness. There is a whole bevy of men who say, I'm a Christian, but don't act like it. Many of these men can be domineering and abusive, and it's easy for people who are critics of Christianity to say they claim to know Christ. That doesn't look like anything I'm attracted to, so they discredit Christianity. But the verses we just read, the verses before us, unequivocally and undeniably refute the idea that complementarianism that God has called the men and husbands to be head of their household and the women to follow these verses refute the idea that that's, in its biblical form, something that creates and allows for abuse or unkind leadership. Why? Because this passage says, lead and be a head or be a leader like Jesus. Put simply, the kind of leadership and headship that Paul has been describing in the last few weeks that we've been looking at this, the kind of leadership and headship that Paul calls for in this passage is a kind of leadership that generates holiness and blamelessness and righteousness. Not domineering and overlording or abuse. Nancy Piercy writes this, nominal men skew the statistics, creating false impression, the false impression that the evangelical men are a group of abusive and domineering men, end quote. And she's right. Now, of course, there are men who take advantage of their role, take advantage of their strength, men who are not familiar with or apply the verses of this passage, and they should be corrected. But as we've been learning, true Christian leadership and true Christian headship of a husband looks like and acts like the Lord Jesus. And if we look like and act like the Lord Jesus, how could we have anything to criticize about that kind of headship and leadership. We've been studying for weeks, and we'll, we'll have a few weeks to go in this paragraph, that marriage serves as an interesting illustration. It's, it's one of the only ones in, the, in the, the Bible, in the New Testament for sure. It's a reciprocating analogy. Think about those two words, reciprocating, back and forth, analogy, illustration. In other words, marriage is said to illustrate how the gospel works. And the gospel is said to illustrate how marriage is to work. Marriage serves to illustrate and inform us about gospel truth. And the gospel serves to illustrate and inform us about marriage. Now marriage, marriage is precious to God. God invented marriage. God even performed the first wedding we don't know anything about the details, but there was no one else to do it. Shouldn't surprise us then that there are many places in Scripture where God's relationship with His people is understood best by the metaphor of marriage. 
Now, I could literally spend the next two hours just reading you passages that go to this illustration, but let me just give you a sampling. In Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10, speaking of God and the, the covenant people in the Old Testament, Isaiah 61, 10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. There, God is the bridegroom and his covenant people, Israel, are the bride. In the New Testament, Paul said, 2 Corinthians eleven two, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. I want to present you as the bride to the husband, which is Christ. It's very specific in the book of Revelation. In the consummation of the end of the time, Revelation 19, 7, let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him for the marriage, the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. That's the church. Revelation 21, 2, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And then the most explicit reference in the entire Bible, Revelation 21.9. Listen to this language. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me saying, come here and I will show you the bride. Listen to this. The wife of the lamb. Can I ask you a trick question? Is Jesus married? Was Jesus ever married? Now, you're going to be tempted to say, well, no, he was single. And you would be right, just not completely right. Jesus has a bride that will become, well, Revelation 21 says, his wife. It's an illustration that the church is the bride and the wife of the Lamb, the Lord Jesus himself. That's the intimacy of a relationship, the closest relationship that could be described Revelation 22, 17, the spirit and the bride say, come. Marriage is precious to God. Marriage is the most graphic and best and most intimate way he described his relationship with his people in the Old Testament and in the New. So here in Ephesians chapter five, we find that illustration it out more and fleshed out more. But here in Ephesians 5 is the most explicit comparison of marriage and God's relationship with his people anywhere in the Bible. It's the association of Christ and the church as a parallel to husbands and wives. As we come this morning to verses 26 and 27, Paul is talking to and Paul is talking about godly husbands. And in these two verses, he speaks directly, however, about Christ and the church. And you'd be tempted by reading verses 26 and 27 to think, oh, he's taking one of those gospel asides, those gospel footnotes, as he does often, where Paul's talking about something and he gets wonderfully theologically sidetracked to talk about that for a moment. And we think, yeah, that's okay. That's a, that's a side issue that he wants us to know about. This is not so much a side issue. Let me show you what I mean by that. Look at verses the book ends, rather, around verses 26 and 27. 
Verse 25, husbands, love your wives. Very directly to husbands. Why? Uh, Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Then verses 26 and 27, which describe Christ and the church, the gospel. Then after that, verse 27, so, let me give you a little Greek lesson. Hutas, so husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. In the same manner as we can translate that Greek word. Then, afterwards, thereupon. So just as he talks about the gospel, he says, just like that husbands should treat their wives. So even though he does take this little aside to talk about Christ and the church, it's intended to be paradigmatic, an illustration, an analogy, a goal, a pattern for husbands as well. So what I want to do is is try to tell you where we are. We're really down in the weeds, but it's important to see kind of where we're going. We've been looking at this whole paragraph, which is 25 through the end of the chapter, And what we see is three applications of a husband's loving headship. This is all tied together. They're not standalone little messages. The the three applications of a husband's loving headship. The first that we looked at last week is this. It's a love that loves like Jesus. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Secondly, that we'll look at this morning, it's it's a love that sanctifies or makes holy like Jesus and then third, that we'll look, like, look at next week, it's a love that treasures or cares like Jesus. So that's the big picture. Last week we did number one. This week we're going to do number two. Next week we'll look at number three. So this week we're looking at number two, which is sanctification. His love, a husband's love, sanctifies, makes holy like Jesus. So you can understand where we are. Three big points. We did number one last week. Now we're looking at number two. We're pulling it out and looking at it in isolation. So last week again, it's a love that loves like Jesus. Reviewing by obeying the command. He says, husbands, love your wives. Pretty simple. How? By following the example. Like Jesus loves. And we looked at a big list of ways he loves last week. And the third, he did that by giving himself up, by sacrificing So it's a love that loves like Jesus by obeying the command, by following example, by imitating the sacrifice. That's just an overview of what we looked at last week. Tracking, you know where we are? Now we go to number two. Last week, it's a love that loves like Jesus. Now this week, it's a love that sanctifies like Jesus. A love that sanctifies like Jesus. Verse 26 so that he might sanctify her, talking about the Lord and the church, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Now, to properly understand the structure of these verses, I need to pull back the English a little bit and show you what Paul is doing in the original text, the Greek. I don't like digging deep in the Greek always, but this is important that you understand and see this. The original language is explicit here in ways that you don't necessarily see in the English. In the Greek, there's a tiny little word, a conjunction. It's a flashing light when you see it and you're reading your Greek New Testament. When it shows up, it demands attention. It's the little word henna. Henna. 
it's a purpose clause. The best understanding of the word which we translate as, which the word henna that we translate is to look at it as so that, for the purpose of. In fact, henna clauses are one of the most important things to look for in hermeneutics and in exegesis in the New Testament. It's a so that, it's a so what, it's an application. So that makes it easy and obvious to find the structure of this text because there are three henna clauses. So that, so that, so that. Real easy to follow. And our substructure here will follow each one of them. Verse 26, so that he might sanctify her. Verse 27, so that he might present, him, present her to himself in all her glory. And then verse 27 at the end, and so that she might be holy and without blame. These are three staccato so that's. So let's follow along and study them together. To love that sanctifies like Jesus first, that first henna clause, as a deliberate process toward holiness, toward being holy, toward being sanctified. And I apologize for all these structural things, but if you read the paragraph, it's easy to kind of get a little bit lost with what's going on. So I think it's, an easy, easier to, it's easier to follow if we kind of draw out this map as a deliberate process toward holiness, letter A. So that, henna, he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with word. The he is Jesus. Her, if you go back to the last uh, phrase in verse 25, is the church. He shifted now from talking about husbands to now the church. But as we know in verse 28, this is all to teach us how to love like Jesus loves the church. There's no mistaking, men, single guys, I'm, I'm here to inform you. There is no mistaking the reality that the wedding day is focused on the bride. No question. I mean, I, I have done hundreds of weddings and usually I walk out with the groom. We walk out from the side door or we walk down the side and we kind of stand here and everybody says, yeah, whatever. And then the bride pops through those back doors. The music starts and what happens? Everyone stands. They are in awe of the bride. And she walks down that aisle and everyone's head just stays glued to her as she walks up to the front. Wedding day really is about the bride. And it was in Paul's day as well. One of the special parts of her day was a sacrificial ceremonial bath or washing or, are you ready for this? Baptism. A ceremonial cleansing. It was to demonstrate her purity as she entered into the marriage. It was to give a reset, a restart, a fresh slate on which she would write her life. The bride would walk down into a man-made pool. Remember those of you who were in Israel with us called a, a mikvah and have this ceremonial washing. The people around would watch her and rejoice that she was now pushing reset and restart on her whole life. A symbolic gesture, literally a baptism, a bath, a cleansing. 
That's the illustration that Paul has in his mind. So keep that in your mind for a moment. Look back at the text. That he might sanctify her. That he might sanctify her. The word for sanctify, as you know, we've studied this many times in the Greek, comes from the word holy. There are three parts of salvation. Justification, coming to faith in Christ, where God makes us just before God, holy and righteous before God because of Christ's imputed righteousness toward us. He makes us justified before him. Glorification, which is us going into heaven, and he makes us perfected and innocent again. And our, our, our inclinations to sin are, are taken away. The flesh is gone. But in the middle between justification and glorification is the rest of our life, which is sanctification or becoming holy. Which is interesting that all of life after you believe the gospel should describe a process by which and through which and in which you are becoming more holy, more like Christ, more righteous. You're growing in holiness. Well, Christ's intent for his bride, here in verse 26, his church, his wife to come, is that we would be sanctified, cleansed, purified, refined, in a word, holy. Now, I know this is talking to husbands, but we need to take it as Paul says it. The whole church should hear this and push pause and Take a deep breath and gulp and say, his intention for me is to be holy. What am I doing to run toward holiness and, a, and run away from impurity or unholiness? He wants us to be holy, listen to this, because he wants us to be happy. But there's a lie that's been going around for centuries. And that is that if you're pursuing holiness, you will not be happy. And if you want to be happy, that uh, excludes being holy. Can I suggest if we are truly holy, then we will be truly happy. Why? Because our hearts will be swelling with the joy of knowing we're bringing pleasure to the one who saved us and who died for us. Gentlemen, husbands, do you have a desire for your wife to be holy? Do you want her to be holy? Do you understand that her holiness is your treasure, your goal? Have you believed the lie that you must choose between holiness and happiness? It's the lie. So how can you serve your wife to make her holy and happy? Well, that's the right question. And Paul answers that in the last part of verse 26. Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Remember that cleansing that that, that bride would take on the day of her wedding? That's the illustration. But now he gives us the application. Having cleansed her, he moves from the physical illustration now to the abstract Washing of water with the word. Christ washes his bride with the word. Now, if you've been around the church very long, you, I know what you're probably thinking. Oh, I know what that word for word is. The word for word is the word logos. And you'd be right that it usually is, but you'd be wrong that that's the word here. It's not the word logos. 
That's a general word. This is a specific word about words. This is rhema, completely different idea. In short, it means that Christ sanctifies us with specifics. It's very precise. He doesn't just just say, go be holy and hope you make it. It's precise. It's rhema. It's exacting words about our holiness. We know that because look in verse 27. They mean he might present the, to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot, no wrinkle, or any such thing. Comprehensive, exacting, precise, not a single blemish. Everything is in the focus of our Lord when it comes to holiness. Every dimension of our life. So Jesus is beautifying his bride in this verse through holiness for his own pleasure. And men, the more we assist our wives in their pursuit of holiness, the more we enjoy their true beauty of who God is sanctifying them to be. This is our pattern. This is our paradigm. We often think of what Peter says to wives from the wife's perspective, and we should, but think about it from the husband's as well. He says in 1 Peter 3, 3, your adornment, ladies, must not be merely external, braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, putting on dresses, in other words, external beauty. He says, merely, it's okay to work on that some, but that can't be the only signature of beauty, but let it be the hidden person of the heart, the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit. So the question that I ask myself is how is my leadership with my own wife leading her to understand how to be gentle and content or quiet? Am I shepherding her toward the holiness that's required of her in the New Testament? Now, I don't want to go on without considering a quick footnote about the church. Jesus loves his bride, the church, who will be his wife, Revelation 21 says. And let me say it as simple as possible. There is no such thing as loving Jesus if you don't love his bride, the church. My friend David Mathis writes this. One way of one way professing Christians betray a small, thin, and weak vision of the risen Christ is by dumping on the church. They might speak flippantly of what the church doesn't get, or what the church does wrong, or the problem with the church in our day. They claim to know better than the church. If only they could fix the church. And having become concerned about an oversight, an error, a danger they see in some Christians or churches, they become careless with their words about the church and particularly so when we consider what Christ says about her. As much as we may claim to esteem Jesus and desire to speak highly of him, we reveal gaps in our devotion when we broad brush his bride with negativity, evidence a strange bias against her and feed into popular opinion by suspecting, seeing, spinning, and speaking spreading the worst. Whatever motivations, which are varied and complex, 
we demonstrate how subtly and perhaps deeply we have been shaped by and conformed to the counsel of this world when we talk about the church in ways grossly out of step with our Lord. And we show how little we think of Christ by speaking endless negativity about his bride, end quote. I hope it's no secret to anybody. I love my wife. I love Kim. She is she's the delight and joy of, of my life this side of heaven. I, I love her, but I really like her. I just like being with her. Um, she's fun. She's funny. She's holy. She's godly. She likes me, which is an anomaly. Can you imagine if you came down after the church service and I was standing down here and you said, Rick, I like you. Loved your sermon. Like your leadership. Love this church. But I don't have anything nice to say about your wife. Well, those are fighting words, honestly. We, we would not be on good terms at that point. In fact, let me say it this way. It would be impossible for me to have any kind of intimate relationship with anyone I know who had enmity toward my wife. And yet, so many in our generation have, quote, had it with the church, but they want to keep Jesus. Oh, that may be a construct of their own imagination, but Jesus has no part of it. next to a glorious presentation, a glorious presentation of holiness that he might present, guess to who? To himself. To himself. The church in all her glory, having, as we said, no spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Boy, one of the things that, that I've learned about in doing the hundreds of weddings that I've been a part of is uh, steamers. Uh, you go and you want to pray with the, the bride and the, uh, the, the, the uh, bridesmaids and the ladies and you, and you come together and they're all... Why? Because they want that dress to be immaculate. No wrinkles. he might present to himself the church in all her resplendence, her beauty, her glory. Now, someone might say, well, that's selfish. He's presenting it to himself. He's God. There's nothing wrong with that. You say, how do we understand that? Because when you present your bride to yourself in holiness, that's a beauty. That's a glory. That's our imitation. And we help to iron out the wrinkles and to remove the sinful spots in correction and loving care and shepherding, all looking toward that glorious presentation. Let me tell you guys, I'm, I am humbled by the fact that there's a reality in which that one day I will take Kim's hand 
and put it into the hand of Jesus. And his expectation is that she is more holy and loves him more because my hand was the one that handed her to him. Hidden person of the heart. Do you think about that great day of accounting men when we will be giving a report on how we shepherded our wives? Well, let's get really practical. That's where he goes next as a practical objective. That's the one day judgment consummation. Now he backs into today that she would, this is the present verb, now, she would be now holy and blameless. He goes from the judgment to now here, the final consummation to life today in our kitchen and our living room, but that she would be holy and blameless as a practical objective of holiness. This is not new in our study of Ephesians. Ephesians 1.4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be, exact same phrase, holy and blameless. Colossians 1.22, yet God has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him, same phrase, holy and blameless, above reproach. Peter describes this to his readers in 1 Peter 1.14 when he says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance. You are in the process of changing from who you were to who God wants you to be. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy, says the Lord. If you go back to chapter four, verse 17, we're not gonna take the time to do this, but beginning of verse 17 through the end of the chapter, he basically says, this is who you were. That's not who you are to be. You are to change progressive sanctification. You're changing toward holiness. What's the point here? Paul is saying, men, we are to be the primary agents cooperating with the Holy Spirit in the progressive sanctification of our wives. And if you have a wife who's an unbeliever, you are to be the primary evangelistic agent through your being above reproach, your care for her, your love for her, your caring for her like Jesus cares. Paul's present practical object is based on the future eschatological goal. One day we will be a part of her presenting herself to the Lord and we're agents and helping her sanctification. But right now, we are to be together because of our relationship. Holy. Final phrase there in verse 27 provides for us the practical application of the text. Holiness and blamelessness. So let me give you two takeaways, men. Two takeaways, husbands. For us. Number one, right out of the text, number one, we must be experts in the theology of the gospel. Paul says, in order to understand how to love your wife appropriately, you have to do that like Christ, which means you have to know how Christ has done that. 
We should be experts in gospel theology, in Christ's love, in Christ's words, in Christ's actions. He's telling husbands to imitate the Lord Jesus Christ and how you love your wife. This means we are intimately familiar with his love for us so we can emulate it. So man, do you study the person of Christ? The ministry of Christ? Do you study the work of Christ? Do you know the words of Christ? Not only for your own benefit, but to instruct you how to love your own wife better. Are you growing in your understanding of the gospel and its infinite nuances? The second takeaway is this. We must pursue and shepherd holiness with our wives. We must pursue and shepherd holiness with our wives. Notice this, I didn't say just in our wives because we're to pursue holiness as well with our wives. Oh man. I read this first hour with my wife on the front row and I just felt pangs of conviction in my stomach. Husbands, is your wife a better Christian because she married you? Is your wife a more faithful believer because she married you? Is she more holy? Does she hate sin and love righteousness because she married you? Are we spiritually present or absentee? with our wives. What are you doing to help your wife grow? Do you open the word together? Do you read together? Do you pray together? Not just that she sees and you doing this and knows that you do it, but do you do it with her? What are you doing to help her be cleansed by God's word? Are you asking her, so what? Not just did you check off the box for Bible reading today, but so what? What are you doing to shield her, to protect her, to guard her from sin with what you do, who you fellowship with, what you watch? Are you the guardian for her holiness? After Adam and Eve had sinned in Genesis 3, we read of their first encounter with God after they had eaten the forbidden fruit. This is heavy. Genesis 3.8. Listen to the singulars and the plurals. They, Adam and Eve, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. They heard that. And the man and his wife, there they are together, hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of a garden. They, they, they. Verse 9. Then the Lord God called to the man and said, 
to him, not them. Where are you? God came to Adam, the man, and called for an accounting for the couple. Adam, where are you? Might it be that the Lord is looking at our marriages, men, and calling our name and saying, Rick, where are you? What are you doing? Ladies, be patient with us as we learn, gracious with us as we grow. Not one of us is going to walk out today and say, I'm the champion of these verses. But I hope all of us leave saying, I want to do better at helping us be better. Aren't you glad we have a God of grace and mercy? His mercy is more. When we were singing that earlier, I thought, I'm going to need that at the end of these verses. Let's work to be better, to push reset. Oh, I love that illustration I heard in junior high. You can take 100 steps away from God, but it's only one step back. Repentance. So if you, like me, just feel a little bit undone by what the Lord has said and his expectations here, God looks at you with forgiveness and grace. And wives, can you look at us with the same <laughs> and help us become better at helping us become better as couples? Father, we need your grace. Oh, I'm so corrected. Confess to you and before these people that I'm not throwing application and darts that have not first hit my own heart. Help us as men to be strong and courageous, to lead as the Lord leads us, to imitate Jesus in affections and in expectations and in caring shepherding to wash our marriages with your word, specific application of your word. Knowing that one day we will see you face to face and accounting is coming and we want to be prepared and ready for that as much as we can, as flawed as we are, because we have tasted of your goodness and experienced your empowering grace in the moments of this marriage, which is momentary. Thank you for the grace that our wives will give us and extend to us. Change us now for your glory and for our good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.